I don't know if any of you have ever looked into your family tree before. If you haven't, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, they say if you shake your family tree hard enough, some nuts will fall out. Uh, I, I know that's right. Uh, it, my senior year of high school, we had to do a genealogy project and uh, discover some things about our family tree. I learned that my ancestors, not too far removed, I think it was my uh, dad's great-grandparents, lived in a dirt house. Like, they dug it out and, and lived in there. So that's awesome. Uh, also found out that my uh, dad's uncle, his name's Peewee, uh, he liked to fish in a river with his hands. Uh, they call that noodling. And it's very popular among the rednecks. So there's that. But uh, we're actually going to talk about that the next couple weeks here. Not the noodling, uh, the crazy family members. We're starting a brand new series of messages today called the Dysfunctional Family Christmas. And uh, you ought to probably think to yourself, that's, that's what I'm fixing to have. You know what I mean? Like, so you got people coming over that you only see once a year and uh, one time's plenty. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, you got some, some kids that are going to be coming to the house and you tell your kids, do not look them directly in the eye. You know, certainly do not do anything that they do. So I thought it would be helpful for us and perhaps encouraging uh, to find out that Jesus might have had the most dysfunctional family uh, in all the Bible. I know that sounds weird to some of you because you thought if anybody would have their stuff together, it would be Jesus' family, but it's simply not true. It's actually why I believe you can trust the Bible, uh, because the Bible doesn't try and cover up on anything or hide anything. Uh, before I show you what I mean, I, I think you should jot this down. Here's the entire point of our four weeks together. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. Jesus did not just come to save us. He didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. That should be very encouraging. So if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. Open up with me towards the back. Matthew chapter 1 is what you'll need to find. Uh, just look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it will go. But if you flat out don't own a Bible, make sure you grab one on your way out. We've got some black ones there in the back. That's our gift to you. You need the big number one and the little number one. It reads, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Pause. That's kind of a big deal. Keep in mind, Matthew, the guy who wrote this, he is a Jew. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And his goal is to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah they were promised a few thousand years before. In case you're new to the Bible, it's important for you to realize that the entire point of the Old Testament is to keep a record of the covenants that God made with the people of Israel, the Jews. And it's important uh, for you to know that the word testament, it actually means covenant. So the point of all the stories and all the verses and all the chapters and all the commands of this old covenant is to show the Jewish people the faithfulness of God. And it's also to keep a record of the people's complete unfaithfulness. Uh, it shows that God can be trusted, we ourselves cannot. 
In reality, the whole point of the Old Testament is to show everyone, including us today, why we need Jesus. People get all hung up on the rules and the laws and the commands and are they still applicable today. And the point of all the rules and the point of all the laws is to show us that you can't legislate morality. uh, That we need somebody who can keep the rules for us. Keep in mind, in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, there was only one rule. There was only one law. Don't eat from the tree that's in the center of the garden. Well, we couldn't even keep that one. And so God fast forward, gives us a few more laws, and then we decide that we need some other laws in order to uh, qualify the laws that God gave us and to help, you know, help us keep them better. And so we end up with over 600 laws. And how'd that work out? Not very good. Okay, nobody could keep any of the laws. People were so concerned about the, the law that they forgot to love. And which is why Jesus shows up and says, hey, the, the first command is you've got to love God and then you've got to love the people around you. So all of this is to point to the fact that we need somebody who's going to keep the rules for us because we are totally incapable. And scattered throughout the Old Testament and through all these books and through all these chapters and through all these verses is clues on who that person is. Now, in fairness, most of these clues were mainly given for the Jewish people so that they could identify this Messiah who would come and save them from the burden of the law and the penalty of breaking the law, which, by the way, is death. And so uh, these signs and these clues and this evidence, it's all to be used for when folks show up on the scene and they say, hey, I'm the Messiah. It's me. And people in the Jewish tradition, they could have a whole list of things that they could look through and decide, is this person telling the truth? Just to show you how much of a nerd I am, I actually read a spreadsheet of 353 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, That we could use as evidence to say, okay, he is actually the Messiah. Because people back then aren't all that different from people today. When folks realize that they can get super popular and super famous, they'll do just about anything. We actually have accounts in the New Testament recorded of people who claim to be the Messiah that actually weren't. How do we know they weren't? Because they're still dead. Amen, somebody, you know? So, Matthew's goal here in writing his gospel account was to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is who he said he was. And part of the way to know that was that first and foremost, the Savior, he must come from the line of Abraham and David. Now, I know normally when you read your Bible and you get to a genealogy, you just skip it, you know, because you can't pronounce any of the names anyway. Uh, What's begat even means? So he's like, next. Uh, But this is important. Matthew here records for us the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And then he writes, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Time out. Why is that important? Why do we need to have Judah? Why didn't they list out all of the brothers? Well, Jacob was also named Israel. Uh, He had 12 sons. That would be Judah and his brothers. And when God gives the Jewish people land that he promised way back to Abraham, they split up the land in the 12 tribes of Israel. That would be Judah and his brothers. Now, you've heard at least of one of the sons. 
the most famous son. His name is Joseph. If you grew up in church, you sang songs about Joseph. Uh, you've colored pictures of his coat. It had many colors. Uh, if you don't know the story, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And he went to Giorgio Armani and bought Joseph a fantastic coat. And uh, the other brothers, they did not think that was super awesome. And so they decided that they were going to kill him. And ironically, it's our boy Judah named here who says in Genesis 37, hey, let's not actually kill Joseph. Let's just sell him in to slavery. Uh, We'll tell the old man that an animal killed him and uh, he'll mourn for a little while, but it'll be fine. And then we don't actually have to kill anybody. You know, we don't have to have that burden weighed over our heads. So the brothers all agree that's a way better idea. And they take the coat, they cut it up, and they spread some blood on it, show it to dad. Oh, an animal must have killed Joseph while he was out in the field. And they send him off to Egypt as a slave. Now, here's why I bring all of that up. Because Judah, he is not a good guy. I want you to know that you cannot read your Bible and the stories of your Bible like most people want to read it, as an inspirational story filled with moral, moral examples for us to imitate. That's what most people think the Bible is. It's just full of these wonderful stories and all these wonderful characters that you should act like. Not really. Uh, sometimes, uh, not certainly with Judah, you're going to see here that he's a failure as a brother, He's a failure as a son. He's a failure as a husband. He's a failure as a dad. We're going to read about how after he sells Joseph off into slavery, he moves to another town, starts hanging out with his brother named Hira. He gets hooked up with this Canaanite woman. He's a Jew. The Canaanites are forbidden by God. He decides to marry her, so he fails even as a Jew. He commits a heinous act of debauchery within his family for a second time, and yet... Here he is in Matthew, named as a direct descendant of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's important for you to know that Judah's family line, all of the godly kings in Israel come from Judah, including Jesus. So the question in your mind should be, how did that happen? Keep, keep that in your mind. We're going to get there. But first, let's keep reading. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was who? Help me out. Tamar. Now, the fact that you can just throw her name around like that would indicate to me that you really don't understand who this woman was. Because for as jacked up as Judah was, Tamar had some skeletons in her closet as well. Furthermore, I'd like to point out that even if she hadn't done anything notable, it's very scandalous to have her name in a genealogy because she's a lady. Uh, Women are not included in genealogies back then. Look at any worldly historical record. It's always the man who is named. And yet, Matthew names not just uh, Tamar in his record here. He goes on to name four other women in his genealogy. It's very scandalous. Uh, but, But why do you think women still take the men's name today? Because that's how it's always been. And that's what we see here uh, in this account. Uh, but if these, or these women are named, and it's very scandalous just because they are women, it's even more scandalous when you hear their stories. These would be the limbs that you would want cut out of your family tree. 
these are the nuts that I was talking about earlier, and Matthew makes a point to name them. Uh, that being said, let's flip back from Matthew uh, to read the story of Judah and Tamar. It's in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis is the very first book in your Bible, so you can flip to the very front. It's a very Christmassy story, old Judah and Tamar. It's like Charlie Brown's Christmas or something. It's a lie. It's nothing like that, okay? Don't, don't believe that. You definitely do not want to read this at Christmas time. In fact, if your kids are in here, you might want to cover their ears, okay? Earmuffs. Here we go. Genesis 38, 1. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant. So that's how that happens. That clears up a lot for me. That's good. (laughs) Came pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. What? Who knows that's not ending well, right? I mean, Ur and Onan, that's bad enough, but Sheila, my kid's getting beat up every day. Verse 6, in the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. The Lord killed him. Then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died you must produce an heir for your brother. We won't dive into the intricacies of this law. All you need to know is that Onan doesn't want to keep the law. He doesn't want to keep this rule. He knows that his inheritance is going to get gobbled up by these kids because they're technically his brother's kids. And so he too does evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord kills him. Two sons, two deaths, both committed by God. What are we supposed to do with that? The fact that we've got God killing people like how do we rectify that in our mind by taking god seriously remember that the penalty the punishment of sin it's death it's only in god's mercy that he allows any of us to live in the first place i think too many people in the world take themselves rather seriously and take god much less seriously if somebody offends them if somebody wrongs them it's like how dare they Yet we offend God repeatedly, and it's like, well, God's a big boy. He can handle it. He's supposed to be gracious and loving and merciful. Now, don't misunderstand me. You should be troubled when you read in your Bible about God killing people. It should just trouble you into repentance. It should trouble you into the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Let me also say, by the way, that it's too late for Onan. It's too late for Ur. It's not too late for you. I believe the reason God wanted this recorded in Scripture is to help remind us that sinning in secret never remains a secret. You know, even if your parents never find out, even if your spouse never finds out, even if your closest friends never find out, even if nobody finds out about the sin that's in your life, you can't hide it from God. We live in a world where anonymity fuels perversion. With the internet the way it is and social media the way it is, we think we can say whatever we want to whomever we want, and we're not ever going to be found out, so there's never going to be any consequences. There's always consequences. It might not come in this life, but it might come in the next. Now, what's Judah's response to this? God kills two of his sons. He doesn't mourn. He doesn't lament. He blames Tamar. 
It wasn't horrible parenting. It wasn't the, the fact that his sons were godless and had wicked behavior. It was Tamar. She was the problem. How do we know that? Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. Here's how we know it. Because the Bible says, But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. Because Tamar was a killer. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira went to Timnah to supervise the shearing of sheep. Don't you find it ironic that he mourned his wife, but not his sons? Verse 13, someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to, or for her, her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. What's Tamar looking for? Revenge. Judah didn't do what he promised to do. She uh, is going to take matters into her own hands. Verse 15, Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. What's Judah looking for? Sex without responsibility. Which again, neither person is acting in a way or having behavior that we should want to imitate or making decisions that we should want to imitate. Yet our culture screams the exact opposite. You should get revenge. If somebody wrongs you, you should get even. They don't call it revenge anymore. They call it justice. If people are intolerant or or act in such a way that you deem to be intolerant, well, then you should get justice. You should get revenge. You should be made even. And sex without without responsibility, that's just just life. That's Netflix and chill. That's swiping right. There's nothing wrong with it. It's certainly not prostitution. Are you so sure about that? Prostitution is exchanging sex for money. Sex without responsibility is making an exchange. You're exchanging something. It might be virtue. It might be uh, something else. You can call it whatever you want. People call it, well, we're, we're married in our heart. We, we are in love. And the average person in America right now loses their virginity at age 16, yet the average woman doesn't get married until 20, 25, and the average male doesn't get married until 27. What do we call that 10 years of just doing whatever we want? The Bible would call that sin. You can call it whatever you want. So Judah notices Tamar. He doesn't know it's Tamar, so they agree on a price of a goat for her services. Now, Judah doesn't have a goat with him. So Tamar says, if you want to employ my services, you're going to need to give me something in exchange since I don't see a goat. So she says, leave your... um, signet cord and stamp and staff it's essentially your wallet and driver's license leave that with me and uh you know they didn't drive back then but uh, it would be for us today Uh, make it applicable and so judah agrees fast forward judah gets to timna tells his friend hira hey i did this thing i shouldn't have done i owe a lady a goat but i don't want to go back will you go for me hira's like dude there's no shame in my game i'll do whatever you want so he goes back And uh, Judah says, don't forget my wallet and keys while you're there. And so Hira goes to the town. He starts looking around. He says, hey, where's the uh, hooker that was out the other night? Tells people like, there are no hookers here. This is Mayberry. He's like, oh, (laughs) she's around here somewhere. And uh, he looks around, but he can't find her. And so he goes back and he tells Judah, she gone. We don't know. She can't find her. And Judah's like, well, forget it. She can keep all my stuff. I'm not going to go look for it. 
Now, watch this. Pick it up in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. She is pregnant because of her immorality. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. You see what's happening? The, the double negative that's going on in Judah's heart. Judah does what everybody does who has a secret. He gets all self-righteous. For a few years now, he has needed to believe bad things about Tamar. Two of his sons have died because of her. So to hide his own failure as a father, to sort of shield himself from the reality of his son's flaws, over the years, he's been sticking little pins into Tamar in his mind. In his head, he's been thinking about how terrible she must be and how horrible of a person she is and and how he needs to believe something bad about her. And now he has it. This is confirmation. He's happy He's saying, burn her. I knew she was a horrible. I knew she was a whore. I knew it all along. Now think about something because you've been in Judah's shoes before. You've done something you knew was wrong and somebody else gets found out and you're like, what a dreadful human being they are. I just thought that they were a Christian and here they are acting like this. All the while, deep down, you know you struggle with the same thing. So listen to me. If Judah does this, if you go down this same path, if Judah follows through on this punishment to, to kill her, there's only two possibilities for, her, for his future. The one outcome is if you do that, something that evil and that unjust, you have to spend your whole life continuing to justify in your heart and stay absolutely convinced that what you did was right, which means you have to continually tell yourself and twist things in your mind and it just will callous your heart and until you finally admit later on what you did was wrong and then it poisons you. So, so you're either so hard-hearted that you can't rectify it in your mind or you're so poisoned that, uh, it, that you cost somebody their life. Either way, you end up in a dark abyss. This is worth noting because Judah has in his heart the same need you and I have in our hearts. Justification. Every single human heart needs to justify itself. It needs to shift the blame. It needs to shield itself from the reality of how selfish and how stupid and how lazy and how bad and how wrong we are. And so we say things like, well, that's not really me. I was had a bad day. Or they made me do it. It was him. It was her. Uh, I'm not that bad. Or, or it wasn't really that, you know, compared to so-and-so. And we can always find somebody who's worse off than we are. And verse 25, as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Uh Uh-oh. Can you imagine the look on Judah's face? Judah recognized them immediately and said, fire's off, boys. She's more righteous than I am. Now you have to get this because this is where Judah's life changed. Here's a perfect example of spiritual awakening. When you hear preachers talk about being born again or being saved or a spiritual awakening, this is what that looks like. When you begin to realize that that you're no better than the people you despise, that spiritual awakening happening in your heart. When you come to see 
There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive, but there's also none of us who have done anything so good that we don't need to be forgiven. Then you're on your way. I'll illustrate it in this way because what's rather popular in our world today is to split up people into two categories, either liberal or conservative. And so if you're a liberal, spiritual awakening happening, happens when you begin to realize that you are as bigoted and as narrow-minded in your own way as the people you despise. And on the other hand, if you're traditional and conservative and moral and squeaky clean and you follow all the rules and you're on your way to being born again or spiritual awakening, when you begin to realize that your own self-righteousness and your own pride begins to reveal to you that in God's economy, you're just as bad as the liberals who conjure up false allegations. Until that happens, you are not spiritually awake. You cannot be born again which this is huge. If you get nothing else to say, you have to get this. The awakening in your heart almost always comes through painful, very painful situations and experiences. Repentance is not comfortable. That's what this story teaches us. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the lost sheep before, but it's a rather popular story in the Bible. If you haven't read it, you can check it out in Luke chapter 15. But the premise is that a shepherd has a hundred sheep Uh, 99 are fine, but one gets lost. And so he locks up the 99 and he goes out to to find the one lost sheep to bring it home. And it sounds very amazing to our Western ears. And we sang a song about it this morning, how God comes and seeks after the one lost sheep. And we color pictures and we've we've seen the, the, you know, the Jesus carrying the lamb on his shoulders. And it's so amazing. But do you know how a shepherd actually saves a lost sheep? I had no idea until I started looking into it. And real shepherds say that when you find a lost sheep, they don't jump up and down saying, hooray, I've been found, I want to go with you. No, lost sheep are scared to death. The only way to save a lost sheep is to literally tackle it, tie up its legs, and then take it home struggling the whole way, baying and whining and whatever they do. In other words, lost sheep, when they're being found, they do not feel like they're being found. Lost sheep, when they are being loved, they do not feel like they're being loved. When lost sheep are being made free, they do not feel like they're being made free. They feel like they're being clobbered. And that's how spiritual awakening often happens with us. The reason I'm glad you're here today, the reason I came to preach this morning, is because to try and help you get to God before it gets to this point. I pray every night for my kids that this is not their story that God does something to awaken the fire in their heart, that they'll love him their whole lives. I want the same thing for you because it's not my story. It's not my wife's story. It's not my family's story. It's not many of my friends' story. Yet God in his mercy will allow these things to happen to you so that he can restore your soul. Write this down if you're taking notes. Your life does not get transformed by chance. Your life gets transformed by change. It's not an accident that you're here. God brought you here to hear a message to change your life. And what's remarkable about Judah's story is we get to see this change, this spiritual awakening. We actually get to see the fruit of it occur. If you would read on in Genesis, Judah shows up again in Genesis chapter 44. There's this amazing moment when Judah and his brothers are standing before the prime minister of Egypt who happens to be their other brother, Joseph. 
that they sold into slavery, that God rose to prominence within the nation, but they don't recognize him because he should be dead. And Joseph's looking down at them, and he's wondering if they're still incredibly hard-hearted and evil or if they've changed. And so he gives them some specific instructions that he wants them to follow through on. And and while they're doing that, Joseph says, I'm going to keep your youngest brother, Benjamin, with me. And you all go back and do what you're supposed to do. And that's a big deal because Jacob, Israel, the father of 12 sons, uh, after he found out Joseph died, Benjamin became his new favorite son. His favorite wife, Rachel, had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. I told you, this is all very dysfunctional. You should take very you know, solace in the fact that these people are all jacked up. Uh, so uh, the, the boys, the, the sons know that, that Jacob will literally lose his life if his favorite son, Benjamin, something happens to him. And so what does Judah do? He looks up at Joseph and he says, take me instead. Let me be the slave. I'll give up my whole life. I'll give up my freedom for Benjamin's sake and my father's sake. Let me ask you a question. How did Judah get there? How did Judah get to the point of being such a a horrible, vile human being to the point that he's willing to give up his life for himself? Tamar. Tamar happened. This whole situation that led to the changes in his heart happened because of Tamar. And plus, I have to mention this before we can close. How many sons were killed by God? Two. You know how many sons Tamar had? Two. Twins. God restores all that was lost. So let me land the plane in this way. Tamar got her life back when Judah looked at her and said, in spite of your sin, you are righteous. Right? In spite of all these shenanigans that you've pulled and doing the immoral, uh, immoral things that you've done, you are more righteous than I am. So he covered her sin, did not follow through with capital punishment, and she got her life back. Her life was saved. My point is, Judah is pointing us to the Lion of Judah, Revelation 5.5. 5. The story is pointing us to Judah's great, 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 and so on, great grandson, Jesus, because what you and I need is someone to cover our sin. We need Jesus Christ to look at us and say, truly, in spite of all your sin, you are righteous. How can Jesus do that? The answer is found in Matthew 1.1. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Savior, the descendant of Abraham and David, the perfect Son of God without sin, the greater Judah saves us from our sin. Only when you know that kind of absolute freedom and absolute acceptance and absolute love, only then will you be able to accept what I pray God is speaking into your heart right now, that you're loved, that you're found. Only then can you go through this journey of self-discovery like Judah and become someone great, which is what God wants for you. Someone changed. Amen? Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, we love you. We thank you for stories like this that should provide encouragement where we are in our lives. 
We're just asking you to do what only you can do right now and speak to our hearts. Where is there secret sin lingering, God? Like Judah had, like Tamar had. We want to confess that to you, God. We want to not keep that a secret anymore. Speak to us. Give us some clarity on who we can confess that sin to. We know that if we confess our sin, we'll be forgiven by you. And if we confess it to one another, we'll be healed. As we continue to pray, some of you right now are looking for healing. God's saying you've got to confess that sin to somebody. Stop keeping it a secret. Others of you have never confessed your sin to God for the first time. To be saved. Like Tamar was saved by Judah. Jesus can do that for you this morning. I want to give you a chance just to speak to God right now. In your heart, just say, God, I believe. You are who you say you are. That you did what you said you would do. Which is send your son Jesus to die on a cross. And because of that, I can be made new. Save me. Forgive me. I believe Jesus is alive. Thank you for new life. God, I thank you for change. I thank you for repentance. I thank you just for the opportunity we even have to come and gather in this place. Just asking you to continue to speak to our hearts, continue to uh, encourage us, show us how we can come closer to you and live for you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.